Right, if you'd like to just keep your uh, Bibles open there to that passage. Let's uh, come before God and just ask him for his uh, blessing on this time now around his word. Father, again, we want to thank you for the fact that you are a God who desires relationship with us, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, and most importantly, through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we open up your word together now, we ask that uh, you might just speak to our hearts, help us to uh, this word this morning to continue to uh, bring about that um, formation, that spiritual formation within us by the power of your Holy Spirit moulding us into shaping us into the people that you called us to be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things which um, I get uh, a little bit sort of disappointed about um, from time to time is where we see um, Christian people sort of making their faith all about an individual thing, where it's just all, just all about me and that it becomes very, very much a, a selfish thing. It's, it's just, this is my faith and it's got nothing to do with anyone else but, uh, but, you know, I'll just live it as I please and, uh, and I'll go about living it, you know, go about it as I please. But, uh, and, and, you know, really, you know, what I do really has no impact on, on, on other people. One of the things which is really important and what we see in, uh, in Scripture over and over and over again is that God actually calls us as his people into community. That he calls his people into a community. In fact, the, the, the scriptures in the New Testament refer to us as the people of God as the body of Christ. That we are indeed his body, all together, brought together under the headship of Christ, that we might actually represent him corporately to one another and to our world. So when we kind of individualize our faith and sort of just bring, you know, bring it down into that, that kind of very small kind of box, then we're actually opposing or actually undermining the purpose of what God has for us as people, as his people. And yes, we've got to make that, uh, that own personal um, statement of faith, that own personal coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, asking for repentance for our sin, recognising our need for him and for his salvation in our lives. That very much is an individual thing. But then God calls us then to be a part of his overall church, his worldwide church. This passage we're looking at this morning speaks about this community aspect of God's people. It's a, it's a passage that deals specifically with instructions to the people of Israel regarding three particular feasts that they were to observe when they finally settled in the promised land. I think uh, the battery might, have been, might be going on this, Robert, so can I just actually ask you to stick up the, uh, the celebrate slide for me, please? Thanks, mate. So we're going to be looking here. Yeah, thanks, Peter. We're going to be looking at uh, this whole aspect of community and the celebration uh, aspect of the community of the people of God in this passage today. The Deuteronomy uh, calls us or gives specific details regarding the people of Israel and how they were to come together and they were to celebrate some specific feasts within the uh, within the the the, uh, the the nation's calendar as they finally come and they're settled in the promised land. Those feasts were the feasts of Passover, the feast of sorry, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Those two feasts kind of went together in the one because Passover was on one day, and then it was followed by the feast of unleavened bread for the next seven days. So they were often grouped together in the one the one feast called Passover. Then there was also the feast of weeks. 
and the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And what we need to understand is that these were basically times where the whole nation would gather together in the place that God would choose to establish his name. We see that emphasised so many times through this passage this morning, not just in through to verses 8, but right through to verse 17. We see God saying that you shall come together and you shall come together in the place that I will choose. Six times God says that you shall come together in this way. There's a real emphasis that God places here. And it's contrasted, I think, in fact, it contrasted with the places of Canaanite worship because scattered throughout the land of Canaan, there was all these different kind of places, these sacred places, particularly in, in high areas on mountains and things like that, where the Canaanites would come and worship their gods. And God is saying, I don't want you to be like the nations around about you, but I want you to come together to the place that I will choose, the place where I will make my name great, and that is where you will celebrate these feasts too. Me, and it was to be a time of, of national celebration. The people were to come together, and you know, they were they when they came into the land of Canaan, they'd be scattered in the various towns that right throughout the uh, right throughout the land. But God says that three times a year, I want you to come together. Yes, you're going to be isolated and distanced from one another as you live in the land, as you go about your day-to-day things. But I want you to come together because I don't want you to lose that sense of solidarity. I don't want, to, I don't want you to lose that sense of unity, that sense of togetherness. I don't want you to become indifferent to the lives of your brothers and sisters, the people of God throughout the whole nation. I don't want you to be tempted to lose your spiritual and national identity. And so God has set up these three festivals and that they would serve as occasions for the people to gather, therefore, in the presence of God and to celebrate all he had done for them and be reminded of the covenant relationship that they had entered into with God. Again, God, there's a couple of times through this passage where God says that as you come together, it's a time not just for celebration, but also to remember, to remember what God has done. Celebrations matter, don't they? Celebrations are important because they identify what we value. In our country today, there are a, 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 a number of, of, of national kind of celebrations that we have. Two particularly that come to mind are Australia Day and Anzac Day, aren't they? It's these kinds of occasions that give expression to us as a nation of our unity and our solidarity focused around our history. And this is what God is saying here. This is what these feasts are meant to be, a time of, of unity, of solidarity, but focused around our history and that history to do with the fact that God has specifically chosen these people to be his people and to be his representatives to the nations around about them. These feasts, the feasts of Passover, of unleavened bread, of, 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 of weeks and of, of booze, were designed to instill, therefore, in the pattern of life of the people of God, a sense of, of unity, of joy, of thankfulness, and of celebration and praise. So we're going to take a look at each one this, this morning to see how they achieve this and what they've actually got to say to us today as the people of God living in, this, in the 21st century. So let's begin with the, uh, the Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread. And that's read to us by Harry in, in verses 1 through to 8 this, this, this morning. 
And if you're following along with your notes, we'll see how we go. Hopefully Robert will be able to sort of just follow along with me as well and he'll uh, be able to kick the, uh, the slides over. But the Feast of, un, uh, of Passover and Unleavened Bread we see took place in the month of Abib. This was the first month, the, uh, the beginning of the Jewish calendar, the first month in the Jewish calendar. And it, therefore it kind of corresponds a little bit to our new year, doesn't it? You know, uh, New Year's kind of celebrations, that, that expectancy of, of, of looking forward to what you know, the new year might hold. And the month of Abib was to be the beginning of the Jewish calendar. It, was to, it, was, it corresponds a little bit with our, uh, with our March, April in our, uh, in our calendar today. And it was during this month that the people were to come again to the place that God would choose and, uh, and, 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 the, and to, to gather together to have this feast. Now the reason that this month of Abib was significant was because it was the month that God had first rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. It says, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. And you are to do it that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. This feast reminded the people of the events surrounding the Exodus. This incredible divine act in history where God rescued his people, where they had been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. They had cried out to God in all of their affliction and God heard the prayers of his people. And so he, 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 he raised up Moses to come and to deliver his people, to, to bring them out of slavery in Egypt and to bring them to the mountain where God would enter into this re- relationship with them. But of course, as Moses went to Pharaoh time and time and time again, Pharaoh kept saying, no, you will not, you know, I will not let your people go. I will not let God's people go. And God brought about a series of judgments on the land, ten in all, all these, these plagues. And you can read about them in the, uh, in the book of Exodus, this, the, uh, the second book in your, in your scriptures. But the last of these plagues was to be a plague over the firstborn. It was to be that God would kill all of the firstborn in the land. All of the firstborn. And he was going to judge the land by doing this. But in order to escape his judgment, the people, the people of God, were commanded to kill a lamb and to sprinkle its blood on the doorposts and on the the lintel of their homes. And in this way, the angel of death, seeing the blood on the, on the doorpost, would pass over that house, leaving its occupants safe. And this is what this feast was to remind the people of, how God had acted powerfully on their behalf. But of course, as well as partaking in this Passover feast, the people were also instructed that they should eat unleavened bread, that bread without yeast for seven days. And this bread was also to remind them of the haste in which they were, they left Egypt. The haste with which God, you know, they, that Pharaoh had just cast them out all of a sudden said, get, get out of here. I don't want to have you here anymore. As Pharaoh's own firstborn child had been killed in that, in that plague. What this bread also reminded the people of was of their affliction. The affliction that they'd suffered at the hands of the Egyptians. 
guess the easiest way to understand this, uh, this unleavened bread is kind of like a bit of like dry crackers. You know, you know the dry kind of salada crackers or that sort of stuff that we sometimes eat today? They're not particularly pleasant on their own, are they? It's nice to have something on them, whether it's Vegemite or stuff like that. And God is saying this, this unleavened bread, you know, it's, it's, really not much, it's really not pleasant on its own. It reminds the people of the affliction that they, that they undertook there in, uh, in Egypt. Thanks, Peter. Well, the occasion of this feast was to be this annual reminder to the people of God, of God's savouring deliverance of them from slavery. And whenever we come to New Testament passages like this, we need to recognise that we need to bring it across also to the New Testament and then into our own context today. Because the New Testament, when we, as we look at passages like this, and particularly the feasts, what we need to see is that these particular feasts are kind of like shadows. They kind of just give you, they're kind of giving God, you know, God's picture a little bit of, of, what, of what God's all about in his, in his redemptive plan for humanity and, and mankind. But they're only a shadow. They don't give the fullness of the picture. That's where Christ comes in because Christ is the fulfillment of these feasts. Christ himself is the fulfillment of the whole of the Old Testament. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes, it reveals the fullness, the richness of God's salvation, of God's plan and purposes for his people and for this world. And when it comes to the New Testament, we see that Jesus gives this particular feast a greater significance. When Jesus first came on the, uh, when, when Jesus first appeared, excuse me, first appears in the scene in the Gospels, we see John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of, of Jesus Christ, the person who was to announce that the Messiah was coming. He referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You can read that, read about that in John's Gospel, chapter one. John said, you know, as Jesus sort of walks by, as John is baptizing there in the River Jordan, he says, behold, as Jesus walks past, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What, a, what an incredible scene that would have been there as the people were gathered around John there at the, the banks of the River Jordan and, and Jesus, who's it's kind of sort of, you know, people are sort of starting to talk, to talk about him a little bit. He walks past and he says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John's disciples, they sort of see, well, okay, well, maybe it's sort of time to, to actually f- start focusing on this guy. And that's what John's whole purpose was, is, yeah, don't focus on me. That's the guy that you need to look to. Because my baptism is only a baptism of repentance. But this guy, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's actually going to make your spirits come alive to God. Here's the person who is actually going to give his life as a ransom for your sin. So that when, you know, the repentance that I'm talking about can actually be, can actually draw you into a new and living relationship with God. <coughs> Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Of course, Jesus' crucifixion took place at the time of Passover. We see that in Luke's Gospel. The night that, uh, of his arrest, Jesus shared this particular Passover meal with his disciples and he took the bread, that unleavened bread, those dry crackers, and he said that it symbolised his body which would be given for them. 
that he would be the one who would be afflicted for their sake. And when he took the cup, he gave thanks and said that the wine symbolised a new covenant made possible with God through the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. So when Jesus was crucified at Passover, he was taking upon himself all of the sin of mankind. All of the sin of mankind there on his shoulders. He became sin, Scripture says. And and as he hung on that cross, he bore the full wrath of God on all of the sins of humanity there at that particular point in history. That that all of the, the wrath and all of the judgment of God was poured out on him. And that Christ drank that cup of judgment right down to the very dregs. And for us sitting here, you know, in our, in our comfortable seats this morning, it is really, really hard for us to contemplate the magnitude of what took place there on that cross some 2,000 years ago. It's hard for our minds to fathom what it would mean for the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to actually take upon himself all of the sins of humanity in that one instant. You think about all of the evil and all of the wickedness and all of the, all of the rebellion and, and all of the, the vileness of human sin that is so vivid in our world today. And this is, Jesus is taking on himself all of the sin from all of history, from history past to history future. There in himself, he, he took it all upon himself. The suffering that he, that he endured on the cross, the physical suffering of crucifixion was extreme beyond belief. But the, the suffering of the Son of God to take all that sin on himself is a suffering that none of us can ever begin to imagine. But I kind of picture it as a kind of suffering that we will experience one day when we go to hell because we haven't accepted Jesus Christ as God's Saviour and Lord. Jesus took that sin on himself and then he bore the full wrath of God's judgment on that sin. And can I say today that if Jesus does not bear God's judgment on himself for your sin, then you yourself will one day have to bear that judgment. And that is a terrifying, an absolutely terrifying prospect. And folks, there are people sitting here in this auditorium today who have not yet come to that point of of, of asking Jesus Christ to be their saviour, of recognising their need for Jesus to pay for their sin. Of needing Jesus to be the one who bears the full wrath, the righteous judgment of God for your sin. And that leaves you in a very, very perilous situation. An incredibly perilous situation. 
Because you never know when your life on this earth is going to come to an end. Sadly, in this last week, one of our family members, our extended family members, has lost one of their family. A person in her 50s who went to bed one night after finishing work and never woke up. And we never know when the end of our life is going to come. But it will come. And it may come sooner than you think. And you need to be ready to face God and God's righteous judgment for your sin. You need to be able to stand before... You know, God is going to call each and every one of us to account. And if Jesus has not been the one who has paid for your sin, if the blood of Jesus Christ is not there painted over your life, then you are in serious trouble. And the blood of Christ is applied to our lives through faith. God's judgment upon us for our sin is averted and we are brought out of slavery to sin and into a new covenant relationship with God. We become his children. And we've got the confident assurance then of knowing that God's steadfast and faithful love towards us will be forever. That we can stand before God confident in knowing that Jesus Christ has been the one who's paid for our sin and therefore I need not fear the judgment of God. Even though I don't deserve what Christ has done for me in his grace, he has poured out that blessing on us and we just need to come and, and just surrender ourselves to him. And that's all it takes, folks. It sounds so simple. It sounds so easy. And for some people, they think it sounds too easy and too simple. That there's got to be something that I've got to do to contribute to this. And God says, no, because there's nothing that you can. I've done it all for you. And I heard a tiny, tiny amen there a minute ago. We today no longer eat the Passover meal, but instead we have two ordinances that Jesus actually instituted on our behalf, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. The two ordinances that we practice in this church. Baptism points to our union with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It's us pulling on the jersey of Jesus Christ, so to speak, and saying, you know what, Lord, I belong to you. You're my saviour and you're the one I want to live for. And then the Lord's Supper, which we, which we uh, come around once a month, is to remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf and therefore the hope that is ours in him. The Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. Then there is the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, which uh, the, uh, the Jews call it. The Feast of Weeks we find in verses 9 to 12. And it says, You shall count seven weeks... 
begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain, and then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Here we see again God saying, you'll do this in the place that I choose. This particular feast is, uh, is associated with harvest. And in Exodus 23:16, it's referred to as the Feast of Harvest. And it took place seven weeks after the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. And what it was meant to do is it was meant to, to be a recognition of God's provision. Of God's provision and for the people's dependence upon him. Reminding the people of how God had rescued them from slavery and had brought them into this new land, this land flowing with milk and honey. The celebration was to include all of the people, even the stranger and the orphan and the widow. And the people were to come, they were to bring this free will offering to God, an offering of the first fruits of the harvest. We read that in Numbers chapter 28 and verse 26. First fruits. Now this, this concept of first fruits is really, really important here for us to, uh, to grasp because it helps us to see the New Testament application of this particular feast. And, and in fact, it has two aspects that I want to quickly look at this morning, okay? And the first is this, that the, uh, the New Testament concept of first fruits is important because it first of all reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 to 23, we read this. But it, the Apostle Paul writes, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus died on the cross, he was, in the, he was in the tomb for three days and he came out of the tomb, he rose from the dead on the third day and that resurrection, that Jesus' resurrection is a powerful testimony to the fact that first of all, God, his sacrifice there on the cross was approved by God, that God is saying, you know what, that is sufficient to pay for the sins of all mankind and therefore Jesus is risen back to life because death no longer has any hold on him. But it is a, this sign of first fruits because first fruits actually means uh, it's 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 looking forward to to uh, to what is what is going to follow what is going to come. It was a sample of the harvest of what then was to come later when all of the, the harvest was brought in, and that's what Jesus's resurrection is. It's this first fruits. It's this sample, if you like, of the resurrection that one day we will all be raised from the dead. Those who are in Christ will be raised to eternal life. Those who are not in Christ will be raised, but to appear before the judgment of God, where God will pronounce his judgment on those people, and they will be cast into the lake of fire with Satan and all of his demons. And there we will suffer for eternity. Jesus' resurrection looks forward, it points forward to the resurrection of all of us who will follow. But not only does it speak of Jesus' resurrection, it also speaks of the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
If you're pretty good with maths, you'll know that seven weeks equals 49 days. And so the day after that is the 50th day. And the day, the 50th day in the Greek language is called Pentecost. And it was at Pentecost that we remember the coming of the Holy Spirit on the first disciples. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. It says the disciples were all together in one place. Why were they all together in one place? Because they were all there gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And at that time, there were many in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. It says that there were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. All were there for this feast. And when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, it gave them this supernatural gift of being able to speak in these different languages from people represented from all different parts of the, of the, of the world in those days. And they were able to communicate the gospel in a tongue that these people could understand and respond to. And we read that nearly, that over 3,000 people came to faith on that day because they heard the gospel in their native tongue. They heard the, the saving message of Jesus Christ and they were they, were, they came to a place of repentance. In Romans chapter 8, verses 22 to 23, Paul refers to the first fruits of the Spirit when he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, what Paul is saying here is that having received the Holy Spirit, when we come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. God places his spirit within us. And Paul is saying here that we have received this first fruits of the Spirit and now we can eagerly await the fullness of our salvation which we will receive when Jesus comes back in all his glory, when he returns. We have a foretaste of what our salvation is, but the fullness of it will only ever be experienced when we are finally with Jesus forever. And the Holy Spirit is this first fruits. It's interesting that there's a, in Jewish tradition, they actually believe that it was at this particular time that in the Jewish calendar that Moses actually received the law of, of, of you know, the, the law of God on the stone tablets at Mount Sinai. And what we need to understand about the law is that it was helpless in giving people the ability to actually obey it. Yes, it pointed to what God's law was. It pointed to how the people were to live. But it didn't give them the capacity in order to be able to live in that way that God had, God had called them to. All it did was to reveal the truth about God and how far the people fell short of God's glory. But God, through the prophet Jeremiah, speaks of the day when things will be different. In Jeremiah 31, and 30, verses 31 to 33, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is what the Holy Spirit has given us. 
The Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, a new love for God, a desire to want to live in his ways. It also gives us the power to live according to God's ways. But not only that, the Holy Spirit is also God's seal upon us. Ephesians chapter 1, God's seal of ownership on us and the guarantee of what is still to come in terms of the fullness of our salvation. Doesn't that just grip you with just in amazement how God had planned all this out right from the beginning of time and how it's just worked its way out through the Old Testament into the New Testament and now into our own lives today? Doesn't that excite you? Boy, it excites me. You know, the law God gave, you know, the, the, the law of, of, to Moses there at this particular time, looking forward to the exact time in the future when the Holy Spirit would come. He said, I'm going to write, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Well, the third feast that we look at this morning is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. We see that in verses 13 to 15. It says, You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and so forth. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Do you see God's purpose? That you might be my people and you might be a people of joy. When you realise, when you grasp the concept, when you grasp all who God is and what he's done for you, that needs to well up in us into into an incredible joy in our hearts. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Yes, our circumstances are hard to find joy in. Our difficulties are hard to find joy in. Our trials are hard to find joy in. But in the midst of those trials and difficulties, God is there with us, watching over you and in strengthening you and upholding you and carrying you so that the joy of the Lord can be your strength. That you might testify to the glory of God there in your life as you go through the deepest and the hardest trials in your life. That you have got a joy about you knowing you, knowing that, that your life is there in God's hands. That no one can take you out of his hands. That he is the one who has got you. He's enfolded his arms around you and he is not going to let those circumstances defeat you in any way, shape or form. But he is going to lift you up above those circumstances and that That is an incredible testimony to the world around about us. They say, how can that person do that? How can that person live in that way? It's because the joy of the Lord is my strength. God is on my side. If God is for me, who can be against me? This feast of booze, the people were to live in these shelters For seven days, these temporary shelters that they were to build, and it was to remind them, to bring home to them the contrast between the struggles of their wandering, the wilderness journeys, with the blessings of finally entering the promised land, God's place of rest and peace and hope and joy. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 5 and verse 1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, 
a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Just as the Israelites look forward to a permanent home, folks, so do we. This world is not our home. Please see that. This world is not our home. Yes, we are here for a time, but we are journeying through this world. We are aliens and strangers, Peter talks about. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This world is not our home. But folks, we live in a way in which we believe it is. We hang on to the things of this world. We go after the things of this world with a passion, with a zeal, with a, you know, as as if this is all there is. And we have got to be different. If there is one thing I hope that you have got through, that that has been drilled into you through this whole series in Deuteronomy, is the fact that we are a holy people, therefore we are different. We are to be distinct in this world today. As the people of God. We are to stand out like sore thumbs. Like an ashtray on a motorbike as some people say. (laughs) We're not just to stand out just for the sake of standing out. But we're to stand out to point people to God. To God's glory. That he might get the fame. He might get the glory and we through and through us he might extend his blessing to all people. That is God's purpose for you and for me today. You might think that you've got a purpose in life, you know, to get a career and you know to get the house and all this sort of stuff. And yeah, those things are important, but if they take the, the, the importance away from God and who you are as a child of God, then those things then become idols. And you are not being the person that God has called you to be. Folks, we've got much to celebrate today as the people of God. We have got so much to celebrate. In fact, you know, the things we've discovered today is, is this, okay? Is that, first of all, the thing we've got to celebrate is the fact that Christ has redeemed us through his work on the cross. That we have been redeemed, that our salvation has been secured in him. Secondly, that his resurrection, his resurrection guarantees our own resurrection. That when this life on earth is over, we will be resurrected to a new life in Christ. We'll be looking forward to not this tent in which we live, but to that house that is ours in heaven, at home with God. Thirdly, we've got the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have got God with us, indwelling us today. And therefore giving us the power to live in the way that he calls us to live. And to be our comforter and our helper as we go forward in this day-to-day living. And finally, we've got a, a wonderful future inheritance to look forward to. That we will be with God forever and ever and ever. Of all people in this world, folks, Christians, we should have the most to celebrate. And when we come together in these gatherings on a Sunday, this should be just a foretaste of what the community of God should be and will be.
So the love that we have for one another should be an extension of the love that God has for us. So when I hear people come and talk to me and say, Duncan, I've got to leave the church. Why? Because for years we've struggled to try to connect into the church, to try to connect into the relationships here in this church, to try and form meaningful relationships where we can come around one another and support one another and care for each other and grow in our faith. If we're going to be the people of God and we're going to reflect God's love, then I shouldn't be hearing things like that, folks. But sadly, I'm hearing it all too often. Not only should we reflect the love of God, we should reflect the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the truth of God. Every single day in our lives, folks. And when we come together on a Sunday, we need to come together, we need to draw around one another, we need to lift one another up, we need to ask one another, how are you going in your life? How are you going with your walk with God? Is there an area where I can be praying for you? Is there some way which I can be supporting you? Is there some way which we can journey together so that we will both stay true and be the people that God has called us to be? How can I be the part of God's body that he has called me to be in this place so that we all work together to build, so that the body is built up to maturity in the Faith. That's what we they're the questions we need to be asking ourselves, folks. Not, well, what can this church offer me? What can, you know, is it gonna be is it gonna cater to my needs and that sort of stuff? It's gotta be what can I do? What is God calling me here to, here in this place, to contribute to the body of Christ so that we all might be built up into this fullness of maturity and that we might all reflect the glory of God to our local neighbours, to our and to our to our community and further out to our world. They're the questions we've got to ask ourselves day after day after day after day. We've got to get out of these selfish mentalities thinking that it's all about me and start thinking, no, you know what, it's all about God. My life is God's and it is his to do with what he pleases, what he chooses and it is my joy to serve him in whatever way he calls me to serve. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your word to us, recognising that, Lord, this is indeed the word of God, recognising that it is indeed the truth, the authority in this world today. Help us to grasp it, not just in our minds, but allow it to grasp us in our hearts, Lord. Allow the truth of your word, the truth of who you are and, and what you've done for us, allow those things to truly permeate our lives. That we might be drawn up into this worship and adoration of you, not just here in this place on a Sunday, but every single aspect of our lives is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a sacrifice of worship, pleasing and acceptable to you. Father, we thank you that you've given us so much to celebrate. Through these feasts, we've seen the salvation that is just truly an incredible blessing that you have secured for us through Jesus Christ. But Lord, help us to remember that that salvation came at an incredible cost. And if we are to walk in the footsteps of Christ, then it will cost us. There will be a sacrifice that we have to make. 
And I pray that you help each and every one of us be willing to make whatever sacrifices we need to in order to be the people you've called us to be. Knowing full well that it is you who empowers us to live in that way anyway. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.